The hymn, It Is Well, was written after the traumatic events experienced by Horatio Spafford. The first event was the tragic death of his four-year-old son, which was soon followed after in 1871 with the Great Chicago Fire, which ruined him financially. He was a lawyer. He had invested a lot of money into property in the Chicago area that was damaged in the fire. And so in eight, by 1873, as the country was going through an economic downturn and his businesses were further uh, hurt, he planned to travel to Europe with his family. And in a late change of plan, he sent his family ahead while he was delayed on business uh, involving some zoning issues in Chicago. While his wife and daughters were crossing the Atlantic, uh, they hit another vessel, and the ship would say were on sank, and all four of Spatford's daughters died. The only survivor of his family was his wife Anna, who sent him a telegram, two words, saved alone. Shortly afterwards, as Spafford traveled to meet his grieving wife, he was led to write these words as his ship passed near where his daughters had died. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, through trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Horatio knew contentment. That's not to say that he didn't struggle with sorrow. That's not to say that he didn't struggle with disappointment or discouragement. But this man knew contentment. And this morning, I'd like us to take our Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 19, so that we can find the source of this contentment that Horatio experienced and that could lead him in, the, in light of such great tragedy, to be able to say, it is well with my soul. Or, in other words, I'm content with what has come into my life. Whether directly by the hand of God or indirectly by the hand of Satan, he says, I am content with what has happened. There is a growing discontentment especially during this pandemic. There's a growing uh, discontent even amongst Christians. And yet as believers, we need to be setting the example to a lost and dying world of how to behave. And we need to be showing them that regardless of what our experiences may be, no matter what the situation we're dealing with, whether it's the loss of finances, the loss of job, the loss of family members, or what have you, we need to learn how to be content. Because the Bible has not promised us freedom from trouble, or trials, or temptations, or tears. But God has promised that in the midst of troubles, trials, temptations, and tears... He has promised us contentment. And yet many lack true contentment. And I believe that the, the uh, clamoring, this, this clamoring for quote-unquote our rights, this claiming that we've been victimized, shows 
that we are a discontented people. We think that our happiness or our contentment is somehow tied to fair treatment. But I'd like you to see this morning in Philippians 4, 10 and 19, a man sitting in prison because of corrupt officials awaiting execution over false charges who's going to tell us how he discovered contentment. And the answer lies buried in a thank you note. Because that's exactly what Philippians 4, verse 10 through 19 is. It's a thank you note. But in this thank you note to the Philippians, we find the source of contentment. And so let's begin there in verse 10. We're going to find the first source of contentment in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. The first source of contentment is being secure in God's providence. Being secure in God's providence. You know, we live in the day of scientific achievement. And the more and more we hear about science and the achievements of science, and I believe that God has given those to us. Let's not make any doubt there that, you know, science has done a lot of great things, and, and that is literally the grace and gift of God. But we have replaced God with science to the point we hear less and less about the providence of God. Even just a week or so ago, uh, the governor of New York proclaiming that we've flattened the curve, not God. You know, we sometimes get this idea that the world is some machine and that even God himself cannot interrupt the wheels that are turning. But friends, let's be clear, the Word of God teaches the providential working of God in nature and in the lives of His people. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day unto day, night unto night, every time we look around, Psalm 19 tells us we see God at work. We see God's providence. And we even see His providence in our lives. Let's think about the word providence for a moment. Providence comes from two Latin words. Pro, meaning before, and video, meaning to see. Simply put, to see before. God's providence means that God sees to something before it occurs, before it happens. Now, it does not mean that God simply knows beforehand, because God's providence involves so much more. It is the working of God in advance to arrange the circumstances and situations of our lives for the fulfilling of His purposes. Now, as we think about that, we need to understand that this pandemic did not catch God off guard. No, it didn't. God in His providence in eternity past knew that, that we would be, in 2020, experience a pandemic. He knew that we would be quarantined, that we would be, have these quote-unquote uh, lockdowns or stay-at-home orders. He knew all of these things. He knew we wouldn't be able to meet face-to-face -face in the church building. He also knew that we would find other ways in which to worship in the meanwhile. God knows all of these things. He knew the start of it. He knows the end of it. He knows what's going to happen in between. You and I don't. 
And because you and I aren't in control, because you and I don't understand everything that's being done and why it's being done this way, and we want to play Monday morning quarterback, and we, we, we hey, we, we're going to read the data, and we're going to figure out why it should be done this way, and why this decision was wrong, and this decision was right, and this politician's this, and this politician's that, and on and on we can go. But at the end of the day, Christian... You need to be a testimony to the world and not display discontentment. No, we may not like what's going on. We may not agree with what's going on. We may not be happy about what's going on. But we need to be setting an example to a lost and dying world that we are content. And when they see us, they want to know where our contentment comes from. It doesn't come from politicians. It doesn't come from data. It doesn't come from charts or graphs. My contentment comes from the providence of God. That God is arranging the circumstances and the situations of our lives to fulfill His purposes. Think back to the narrative of Genesis 37 to 50. It's about Joseph and his brothers. And you'll see a great illustration of providence. Joseph's brothers envied him. Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave when he was 17 years of age. He was taken to Egypt. And there revealed that seven years of famine were coming after seven years of plenty. And it was through Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream that the facts were discovered. And because of that, Joseph was elevated to the position of second ruler in Egypt. And after 20 years of separation, Joseph's brothers were reconciled to him. And Joseph says in Genesis 45 verse 5, God did send me before you to preserve life. Now think about that. They wanted to kill him. And he says that was your plan. But God's plan was to send me to Egypt to preserve your life. Have any of us stopped long enough to pause and consider what it is exactly God is doing? In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says, For you, his brothers, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. There's the providence of God. His hand ruling and overruling in the affairs of life. Paul experienced this same divine providence in his life and ministry. And he was able to write in Romans 8.28, We know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. Now here's Paul now in prison. Paul is sitting in prison. He has been cut off from people. He's there on false charges. He's awaiting execution. He has had to deal with corrupt officials. You know, from our perspective, that's not fair. His rights were violated. And yet, I don't hear that out of Paul's mouth at all. Instead, I hear something completely different. That Paul says, I count it all joy. Why? Because it has provided him with opportunities to minister that he never would have had before. Man meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And now, God in His providence has caused the church of Philippi to become concerned about Paul's needs. 
And it came at, a very, at the very time that Paul needed it the most. You know, they had been concerned, but they had lacked the opportunity to help previous to this. You know, today we've got Christians who have great opportunities but lack the concern. In God's providence, he brought Saul to that prison. In God's providence, he had Saul brought up on false charges. In God's providence, he had Saul deal with two very corrupt governors, Felix and Festus. And in all of that, Paul's going to say in the next couple verses... I'm content with it. I'm okay with it. Because while they got their plans, God has His. You know, friends, life is not a series of accidents. Life is a series of appointments. In Psalm 32, verse 8, God said, I will guide thee with mine eye. God is guiding us, folks. We can't take our eyes off of the fact... That God is in control. Abraham called God Jehovah Jireh, meaning the Lord will see to it in Genesis 22 14. Listen, God is still the God who provides. And He provides, why? Because of providence. In fact, right in the word providence is what? Provide. God will provide. In John 10 and verse 4, it says, when he put it, puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them. Friends, God is going before us. We think we're going into unchartered territory. We think we don't know what lies ahead. But you know what? You have a person, you have the God-man who is going before you, who knows before all these things what is going to happen, what's not going to happen, when it's going to happen, when it's not going to happen. And he says, I've got it. But he needs you and I to be content. But contentment only comes from being secure in God's providence. Look at verse 11. Not that I speak for want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. That brings us to the next source. And that is, not only does contentment come from the providence of God, but contentment comes from being satisfied in whatever situation. So I'm securing God's providence and now I'm going to be satisfied in whatever situation. Not that I speak from want. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. You know, Paul takes great pains here to make it very clear that he doesn't want his words to be misunderstood. The fact that the Philippians had not sent help sooner didn't mean that Paul was disappointed in them. It, it, nor does it mean that because they couldn't help sooner that he had been put in a desperate strait because of them. He says, no, I've learned the secret to the Christian life. That I've learned to be content with whatever my situation, despite my outward circumstances. And he had to learn this because, friends, contentment is not a natural human response. See, our fallen nature is discontent. 
You go all the way back to the garden. As soon as Satan appeared on the scene, right away he plants discontentment in the hearts of Adam and Eve. Is this what God said? Doesn't it look good? I think God's keeping something from you. And immediately there was a distrust of authority and that distrust of authority led to discontentment with what God had given them. And here we are some 6,000 years later and we're still dealing with the same two things. We have a distrust of authority, and because we distrust the authority, we distrust the man, and sometimes understandably so, but that distrust becomes discontent. I'm not getting what I want, when I want, how I want, where I want, why I want, and so on and so forth. My friends, we need to learn contentment And that comes by being satisfied in whatever the situation. I want you to consider the word content there. The word content in the Greek means to be self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. It means to be independent of others. Now, how is Paul using this? Well, he used this term to describe an inner sense of rest or peace that comes from being right with God and knowing that He is in control of all that happens to us. Once we stop struggling with the providence of God, once we embrace the idea that God has brought these things indirectly or directly into our lives, that God is in control of these things and working it out for His glory, His purpose, our good, then we're going to get a sense of peace And we're going to become, because we know He's in control of whatever happens to us. Now make no mistake, Paul is not promoting a Stoic philosophy. You know, the Stoic philosophers of Paul's day used the word content to describe a person who impassively accepts whatever comes. That's not what contentment is. That's not biblical contentment. Biblical contentment is not simply, oh well, that's what it is, so be it. No, Paul explains that sufficiency, self-sufficiency, is a sense of peace that comes from being right with God and knowing He's in control. The fact is, our coping mechanism doesn't come from some fatalist point of view. Oh well, just the way it is. But it comes from the strength that Christ gives us to cope with those circumstances. Now, how do we get to this lofty goal of contentment? Well, it's, again, it's important for you and I to understand that biblical contentment is not fatalism. God's not calling us to fatalism. He's not calling us to just, you know, whatever may be will be. Nor is He calling us to acquiescence. Well, I can't, you know, it's just what it is. Such thinking, I believe, would smother God's ongoing guidance. Rather, biblical contentment is all about your and my perspective on life. 2 Corinthians 4.18 tells us we need to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. 
For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's where we need to get our eyes focused on. Get your eyes on God. Some of you got your eyes so glued to the screen, so glued to the latest news, the latest statistics. Man, you can't trust the news. I've got four different news sources. From the far left to the far right. I lay all, all of them down next to side each other. Find an article that's all about the same information. And you would be surprised how four different sources, or maybe you won't be surprised, four different sources can totally twist, change, editorialize, and opinionize what was said, not said, done, not done, this, that, and the other. I basically sit down and take my highlighter and I highlight in all four that what they all agreed on. Then I might be close to the truth. But we're so glued to what's seen. We need to get our eyes glued on what is unseen. I would challenge you, for every minute you spend watching the news, spend the same amount of time in the Word of God. Spend the same amount of time reading something about the Word of God. Doing a study in the Word of God. You know, people for years, I've heard people for years, I just don't have time to study. Well, you got time now. I don't have the time to get into God's Word. You've got the time now. Now more than ever, we can redeem the time because indeed the days are evil. My friends, if we want to have real commit, commit contentment, we need commitment too. We'll get to that later. Not today, another Sunday. But if we want to have contentment, number one, we need to remember that everything belongs to God. Do you understand that? Do you embrace and understand the idea that everything you and I have belongs to God? Everything you and I have is ultimately a gift from God. Second, you want to be content. You got, you, and we're talking about here this being satisfied in whatever situation. Not only do you remember what, that everything belongs to God, but two, you need to be thankful for what you have. And stop coveting what others got or don't have. And we're so busy. Well, look at them and look at them. And how come this and how come that? Christians, stop. Just be thankful for what you've got. Because there's a lot of people that don't have what you have. Reminds me of the illustration of the goat. Man was stuck in his house with his wife and eight daughters. And this man was just getting to his, the end of his rope. Finally went and saw his doctor and he's telling his doctor, I just, I can't deal with it anymore. I got to get out of the house. You know, I, just, I need a break. I can't stand it. It's just horrible. I'm living there with my wife and my eight daughters. What am I going to do? So the guy said, well, you've got a goat, right? Yeah. Bring the goat in the house and see me in a week. So the guy went home, brought the goat in the house. Comes back a week later. Oh, doc, it was horrible. The goat stinks. It, you know, the goat is into everything. The goat's tearing things apart. The goat's making a mess of the house. And on and on about how bad it was with the goat. He said, okay, when you go home, take the goat out. I put the goat back outside and come back in a week. He came back a week later. Oh, he says, it's so wonderful. The house is clean. It smells good. It's this, it's that. Everything about his perspective changed. Now listen, his circumstance didn't change. 
He was still there with his wife and eight daughters. But the goat changed his perspective. And God has slowed us down. God has placed us in a position to check our perspectives. Be thankful for what you have. The third area in which we need to be satisfied, or the third way in which we can be satisfied, is to ask God for wisdom. We need wisdom from God. Stop reacting to this or that information. God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom to know how to handle this or what to say here or what to do there. Pray for grace. You want to be satisfied in every situation? Pray for grace. To let go of the desires for what you don't have. Listen, all of us are in the next several weeks and months are going to have to change things, give up things, you know, lose out on things. And it's not that that's a permanent state. But we're going to go through those things. How do I do that? Well, you pray for grace. And then trust God to meet your needs. Trust God to meet your needs. Look at verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And this brings us to the third source of our contentment. The first source of contentment comes from being secure in God's providence. The second source of contentment comes from being satisfied in whatever situation. The third source of contentment comes from being fulfilled in every circumstance. Fulfilled in every circumstance. Paul says, I know what it's like to have little. By the way, the word there, abased, or uh, where he says, um, I know how to live, get along in humble means. That's the same word used in Philippians 2, 8, to describe Jesus humbling himself. Paul says, I've voluntarily accepted a low status. I've even accepted this life of poverty for the master's sake. Now think about that. Have you come to the place in this pandemic with all the upheaval that it's brought and all the you know issues that we're dealing with because of it? And to, to be very honest, our... Or, or I'm not, and I don't. And again, I don't want to talk down, or I don't want to undermine. You know, we're dealing with serious things, but there are people in other parts of the world that are dealing with far worse, okay, than what we're dealing with. But God's brought this into your life. God's God has given us this time. And you and I, we need to respond by voluntarily accepting for the master's sake what he has brought in, these circumstances. Again, Paul wasn't saying, hey, I'm thrilled about being living a life of poverty. Paul said, you know, I'm thrilled to be going through difficult times. He didn't say that. But he said, I've learned the secret. You know, the opposite of having little is having plenty. 
That's literally what Paul says. He says, I, I know how to have humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. You know, the idea of that word prosperity, I know how to live in, in the overflow. You know, Paul had been a fairly wealthy and influential Pharisee. He had had it. He, man, he, he lived the life. And now he's on the opposite end of the economic spectrum. And whether he had little or lot, he was able to keep his life on an even keel because of contentment. He said, I've learned the secret. And this phrase, learn the secret, is only used here in the New Testament. And it's an expression that was used amongst the pagan cults of the day to describe the initiation of a new member. And Paul's saying, I've been initiated by my experiences into living a victorious Christian life. Are we looking at our circumstances the same way? Do you and I look at the circumstances that we're struggling with and dealing with and saying, Lord, use these experiences to initiate me into a victorious Christian life. Paul had joys and he had sorrows, being well fed and going hungry. But he said, I know this, I'm fulfilled in every circumstance. Even when he only had a little, God always provided. Goes right back to God's providence. Are you fulfilled in every circumstance? The answer is going to be no, unless you're looking at every circumstance that comes into your life as an opportunity from God to bring you into victorious Christian living. We need to look at the highs and the lows of our lives. We need to look at the good and the bad that comes in, whether it's our own stupid uh, fault or whether you know it's something totally outside of ourselves that's come into our life, whatever it may be, and say, listen, how is this circumstance going to lead me into a victorious Christian life? Again, we need to see the circumstances as the means of God refining us. We need to see these circumstances as the means by which God is molding and shaping us into his vessel fit for service. Contentment comes from being fulfilled in every circumstance. Again, it's not that the circumstances are always great, but that God always has a great plan in every circumstance. The fourth area, verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So he said, first of all, the source of contentment comes from being secure in God's providence. Secondly, from being satisfied in whatever situation. Third, by being fulfilled in every circumstance. Now four, contentment, the source of contentment comes from being strengthened through Christ. You know, Paul did not gain contentment through stoic self-discipline. Instead, he said, it's through Christ alone, the literally the one empowering me. 
Paul had given up all of his accomplishments, all of his credentials when he followed Christ. He realized he could not live the Christian life on his own. He said, I can only live this life in dependence on Jesus Christ. And maybe Christians, we here in America have become so independent of Christ that now he's bringing us to a place that we have to be dependent on him. The context here when he says, I can do all things, refers to verses 11 and 12 that, we're going, that we've already read. Those situations, those circumstances, you can get through those situations and those circumstances when you let Christ strengthen you. You will never be content if you let the outward situation or circumstance determine your attitude. Christ gives His strength so that Paul could continue with his ministry and the work of spreading the gospel, whether he had plenty or he had poverty. He had complete confidence that no matter what the circumstance, Christ would give him the strength to meet it. Paul had a can-do attitude. And we need to have a can-do attitude. I want to take this verse for a moment and divide it into two halves. First of all, he says, I can do all things. To stop there, let's pull the words and, and, you know, see what they say. Now, here's the problem. If you just stop right there, I can do all things. Man, you, you can develop a self-reliant, cocky self-assuredness. I can do it all. And that's the, that's the message we hear from the modern-day motivational preacher. You can do anything you want if you put your mind to it. But that's not what the verse says. The last half of the verse reveals the source of how you can do all things. That's Christ. God wants us to accomplish all things and as many things for Him in this world, but it can only be done through Christ. We need to stop trusting in our own strength. We need to stop trusting in our own abilities. And we need to rely on Christ and His power. And I believe that these confident words, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I believe that these words should be spoken by every Christian. I believe it ought to be our mantra, if you will. We received power in union with Christ so that we can do His will, so that we can face the challenges that arise from our commitment to doing it. And it's not that He's granting us some superhuman ability, nor that, nor that He's giving us every resource imaginable. But He says this, when you face those trials, those troubles, those tribulation, and those tears, you don't need to worry. Because God says, I've given you the strength to bear it. Remember, He doesn't give us more than we're able to handle. He'll supply the resources sufficient to do what He's called us to do. Does that verse promise that we can do anything we want? No. But it does promise we can do everything God wants us to do. You can do everything and anything that God wants you to do 
not because of your strength, not because of your power, but because of the strength and power of Christ that lives within you. Now, we may wonder at times if God's expecting too much. We say, how can we possibly break that sinful habit? How can we possibly heal that relationship? How can we possibly tell the neighbor about Christ? How can we possibly give to the church? How can we possibly do this? Let me tell you, friend, because God's promised to give you the strength to do what he's asked you to do. So you need to ask, what is it that God wants you to do? Don't be asking, what does God want the preacher to do? Or what does God want my wife to do? Or what does God want my husband to do? Or what does God want this one to do or that one to do? Hey, we're great for that. We're great for sitting in church and looking around the room and thinking, huh, this, I hope this person's listening. Oh, I hope this person's applying this. Oh, I hope this person's paying attention. No, you need to be paying attention before the, with the Holy Spirit and asking yourself, What does God want you to do? And then I challenge you to step out in faith and do it and trust Him for the strength. So contentment, the source of contentment, it comes, number one, by being secure in, the in God's providence. Two, being satisfied in whatever situation. Three, being fulfilled in every circumstance. Four, being strengthened through Christ. And number five, the last, the last piece of the puzzle, the source of contentment comes from resting in God's promises. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God, will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. See, that's our fifth place, fifth source, that contentment comes from resting in God's promises. You know, sometimes the Lord works through the redeemed people to meet human needs. Contentment did not do away with His troubled circumstances. He was content in his troubled circumstances. He's operating from a Roman jail cell, chained to a Roman soldier. That's not operating from a position of power, friend. Oh, they're attacking our churches. Stop with that nonsense. They're not attacking your churches. For that matter, every religious institution in this country is shut down, quote unquote. But you know what? They didn't stop us from preaching. They haven't stopped us from doing the work of the Lord. Yes, we can't meet in the building. Okay. It's not the first time. By the way, do a, read a little history. Go back 1918. All schools, all theaters, all non-essential businesses, all churches were closed for a period of time. Okay. But let's understand, folks, that the gospel is still going forth. They haven't said stop preaching. 
In fact, instead of complaining, we ought to be rejoicing because more people are hearing the gospel than ever before. The very first Sunday that we put our messages online. Now, how many people are here on a given Sunday? Around 45 to 50 people. 96 times that message from March 22nd has been played. 96 times. Now, that doesn't just mean 96 people listen to it, which that in itself would be significant because that's almost double of what would be here on a Sunday morning. But how many of those people who clicked play and listened had more than one person sitting there? Wow. That ought to give us pause. That ought to make us rejoice. That ought to make us praise the Lord. That ought to get us excited to know that the gospel's out there. And friend, listen, we can't, you say, well, I can't do the work of the ministry. Sure you can. Take that link, send it to someone else. Every time you're sharing that message or any devotion or whatever, you're involved in the work of the ministry. You're reaching people from your couch with the message of the gospel. If Paul can do it from a jail cell chained to a Roman soldier, we can do it from our couches. Now this gift from the Philippians was not unexpected. Paul says they had treated this way, treated him this way before in the beginning of his ministry. And then some things happened. They weren't able to continue, but now they've resumed uh, what they had started before. And so this is Paul's official receipt. He's acknowledging and giving credit for the church's gift to him. Paul says, when I went to Thessalonica. Now, if you go back to Acts 16, Paul left Philippi, went to Thessalonica. And he says they had been sending him gifts when he was there. But then, whether things befell the Philippian church and they were unable to continue their giving, we don't know. It more than likely happened because of the situation where Paul was in prison. They didn't know where he was in prison. They didn't know how to get him help. But now that he's in prison in Rome, now they know where he's at. And so as soon as they now know, hey, there's Paul, let's, get our, let's start giving to Paul again, that ministry again. And he's thankful for their partnership. They were partners with him in ministry. Think about this. All the letters that Paul penned from the Roman jail cell, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, obviously Philippians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus. These Philippians who were supporting Paul's ministry never sat in the prison cell with him, other than Epaphroditus, but they were part of the ministry of those letters. So even today, when you and I sit and read from Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus, when we read those what we call prison epistles, understand those Philippian believers who are long since gone on to glory are being blessed because they were part of the ministry that allowed Paul to write these epistles. That's awesome. 
And so when we're able to take, you know, this extended period of time to dig in and, and, and do ministry in a different way, as you say, well, what can I do? Well, as you give to the ministry, you're enabling the ministry to continue to go forth. And knowing that should bring you some contentment. You can rest on God's promise to know that your labor is not in vain. My labor is not in vain. God's still accomplishing His work. They were, all, they were giving a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. You know, in the Old Testament... Uh, the burnt offering was referred to as the fragrant offering. All right, the sweet-smelling aroma of the burnt offering. Now, if you've ever smelled something burnt, it doesn't smell sweet. But to God, it did. Because the burnt offering was a voluntary offering that one offered for one of two reasons. One, for sin. But two, to show one's devotion to God. And so Paul is saying, listen, when the Philippians were giving to the ministry, they were showing their devotion to God even though they were separated by hundreds of miles. And we can do the same. And as we do that, we can rest in the promise of God and be content. You know, our burnt offering, okay, isn't made on an altar with wood and fire, get goats, bulls, and lambs. Our fragrant offering, our acceptable sacrifice that's pleasing to God, comes out of a heart desire to want to do the ministry, to support the ministry, to further the ministry. And so whether it's as you're giving of your finances or whether you're, you know, sharing that message or that devotional with someone else, you're doing the ministry. You're part of the blessing. And you have the promise of a reward, as we see in verse 19. He says... And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory to Christ Jesus. You know, those Philippians made a great sacrifice. You, many of you have made great sacrifices. And God says, he will fulfill all your needs. As they met the needs of the ministry, God will meet all their needs. And God does this out of the abundance of His treasury, a glorious resource without limits. You say, well, how do I draw from these re this unlimited resource? Only through Christ alone. Only those in Christ have access to God's account and can ask Him to meet their needs. And we can trust in the promise that God will always meet our need. Whatever we need on earth, God will always supply. Even if it's the courage to face death. We must remember there's a difference, though, between want and need. Most people want to feel good. Most people want to avoid discomfort. Most people want to avoid pain. My friends, we can't necessarily always feel good. We can't always avoid discomfort or pain in this life. We may not always get what we want, but God will always provide what we need as we rest in His promise and support the things that He wants us to support. When we trust in Christ, our attitudes and our appetites will be changed from wanting everything to accepting His provision and power to live for Him. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs 
describes contentment as the sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. It's a work of the Holy Spirit indoors. You know, you think about the fact that we're basically stuck indoors. Well, the Holy Spirit's stuck indoor, indoor of your life. He's stuck indoors. So what are you letting Him do indoors? You know, I hear different ones of you that you're doing this, getting this done and that done while you're stuck indoors. That's great. What's the Holy Spirit getting done? What are you letting Him get done? See, our contentment doesn't consist in getting what we want, but in God fashioning our inner man to His conditions. The Holy Spirit's residing in you. What's He doing in you? Tell you one thing, He wants to make you content. He wants you to embrace the life of contentment, regardless of your situation, your station in life, or your circumstances. He's given you the source of contentment. He's given you the ability to be secure in God's providence, to be satisfied in any situation, to be fulfilled in any circumstance, to be strengthened through Christ, and by resting in His promises. I challenge you, examine your life. Look at areas, you know, in, in your life. Are you always secure in God's providence? If there's an area where you say no, confess it, forsake it, get it right. Pray to God for help. If there are situations you're not satisfied in, that's okay. Acknowledge them to God. Ask God to make you satisfied. Are there circumstances that you're not being fulfilled in? Certainly. Well, pray to God for those circumstances that you will be fulfilled. That God will fulfill you. Is there any areas where you're weak? Sure there are. Pray that Christ will strengthen those weak areas. Are there things you need? Certainly there are. Trust in the promise that God will supply all your needs. We don't stop living for Christ just because life is hard. What we do when life gets hard is learn to be content. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for the word that you've put before us, Father. A hard word to be sure. Because we, by nature, our sinful nature is a discontent, distrusting people. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to trust in you, our heavenly Father. And that, Father, by trusting in your providence, we'll be satisfied in our situations will be fulfilled in our circumstances, will be strengthened in Christ, and we can rest on your promises. Father, there is much work to be done even in the bad times. So, Father, give us that grace. Give us the strength that we need to do that. Lord, I pray for each of us, Father, as we examine our lives, as we identify areas of our lives where there's discontentment simmering, that, Lord, we would take those areas and we would surrender them to you, we would forsake them, And we would seek to replace them with an attitude that is pleasing to you. We ask this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.